Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I want you to know that I'm pretty excited about uh, preaching this morning. This is really my favorite thing to do all week. Every, every week is, is to preach. When we come to this moment on Sunday morning, it's my favorite part of the whole week, and especially so today. We have worked really hard over the last six or eight weeks getting through a very difficult portion of Joshua, and we did it. We did it last week. We wrapped up kind of all of the talk of these cities and tribes and clans and all of this, and we got everybody just where they were supposed to be. And we saw some neat things last week, especially as the Levites are given some cities to dwell in. We learned some important lessons about how we can draw near with confidence to God and, and ask for help when we need it, not because we're strong, but because he's made promises to us. And because because he's strong and he's faithful. And so we come with confidence through Jesus Christ and ask God to fulfill those promises. We talked about how God's people are to take care of God's servants. We see that with the Levites as they are given cities and lands, uh, pasture to, to put their cattle in. We talked about how life is fleeting, it's short, and therefore we should invest in eternity. And then we saw this, this last little bit of chapter 21 where we make transition from the middle section to the last section of Joshua and, and we kind of recount all that God has done. And the right reaction to knowing what God has done for his people is always worship. Um, it is always worship. That when we hear about his faithfulness, when we know the truth, a right response to that truth is always worship. And that's what we saw at the end of the text last week. And this week's text is really neat. Really neat. You're going to see some neat characters. It's a story that develops pretty well. If you're like me and you can close your eyes and imagine these things happening, it is very vivid. It is very detailed. What you're going to see is God's people trying to figure out how to live together, even when they're not together. And how to overcome misunderstandings and disagreements and, and problems and how to come back together in unity. I think this is an important lesson for us today. I think when we read chapter 22, we see the church all over it. We see the gospel all over it. And we can relate to it because we are not always together, right? We, we don't always live together. Somehow we've got to figure out how to be together even when we're not together. And we've got to figure out how to overcome disagreements how to overcome misunderstandings, and how to come back together in unity. This text is full of good, important truths. It's also full of some interesting characters. You're going to be introduced to a guy named Phineas, who is really cool. In fact, I am now um, um, angling at Boaz Phineas Winkleman. It's good. You may be convinced when you hear about Phineas today. All right? Chapter... Do you have your Bible? All right. Joshua chapter 22 is where you need to go. We are in the home stretch of Joshua, and there's some cool stuff that happens from here on out, some really good stuff. And I want to say congratulations to you who have stuck through uh, the difficult parts of Joshua. You can, you can run with ease now to the finish line, and it's going to be awesome, I, I promise you. Um, let's pray together, and then we'll break this text. It's long. We'll break it into some portions today. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for time already in your presence. Thank you for truth that we can sing about, that, that all we have is Christ. And you have, you have purchased our lives with the blood of your own Son. You, you have given him as a substitute for us. And through, by grace, through faith in him, you have given us righteousness. You have made us righteous. You have forgiven us and given us eternal life. God, we want to know those truths of the gospel. We want to celebrate those truths of the gospel. And we want to worship you for the truth of the gospel. And God, today I pray that you help us make connection uh, between worshiping you uh, for the glory of the gospel and, and, and responding to it rightly and being passionate for uh, the... the uh, 
proclamation of it. God, I pray that uh, today we will learn the lessons that Israel uh, learned in Joshua chapter 22, that we will see how all of this applies to us as your church, and that we uh, will respond rightly uh, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so the way we're going to break this up is you're going to see different parts of this story as it develops. Um, And the first part is in verses 1 to 9. And what you're going to see in verses 1 to 9 is that Joshua commends the the two and a half tribes that have been fighting along with the others who who have already really received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. We'll talk talk about them as the Transjordanian tribes. I think uh, Joe talked about this. Joe introduced you to this language. The Transjordanian tribes who live on the other side of the Jordan, they've already received their inheritance. But if you remember when all that went down, uh, they, they came to Joshua and said, hey, we, this is the land we want. We, we want the land over here. It's good for our cattle, and, and we want this land. And Joshua told them, well, okay, you can have that, but you've got to fight with your brothers. You can't come back and settle here. You can leave your wives and your children here, but you've got to go and fight with your brothers and take possession of the promised land. And only once that battle is, is accomplished can you go back and dwell on the other side of the Jordan. And so where we're at in chapter 22 is that battle is accomplished, and Joshua is getting ready ready to send these guys back to the, to the land that they've received as their inheritance. And it's a really interesting scene, really exciting scene. And you've got to think that it was quite emotional as these guys who have fought together for years now, years and years of hard battle, years and years of watching God work on their behalf. And now they're about to separate and, and go their separate ways. And uh, it's just a really neat scene. Look what Joshua does in, in verse one. It says, then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Verse 5 is crucial. It says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Two things are happening in this part of the text. One is that Joshua is commending these men, these soldiers, these Israelites. He's saying, way to go. boy! you have done it. You have stuck with your brothers. You have fought with your brothers. In fact, most of the accounts when they go into battle, it's these guys who lead the way. These guys who are the spearhead uh, of the battle. They are the ones who are on the front lines. And it's not even the land that they're going to live in. But they have fought faithfully and they have fought hard. And now Joshua says, you've done it. Way to go. Good job. Now you can go back to your land. Now you can go across the Jordan to the land that God has given you. So he commends them. And it's important to see in verses 1 to 4 that he commends them first. He gives them encouragement first. And I want you to know that we need to do a better job of that here at First Baptist Church. That I need to do a better job of that here at First Baptist Church. We need to commend each other. When we see a job well done, when we see somebody serving faithfully, when we see somebody going the extra mile, we need to say, way to go. a boy. We've got people down in the nursery right now. And when you see them after a while, you need to say, way to go. a boy. Thank you for watching those little kids. You need to say to your Sunday school teacher, way to go, boy! Thank you for studying that lesson. Thank you for speaking it to us. We appreciate you. When you see your deacons, when you see your staff members, you need to say, way to go. You catch where I'm going with all this? We need to be, we talk about being an environment of encouragement and we need that. We need to commend each other. We need to encourage one another. I'm telling you, it goes a long way. 
It goes a long way if you are serving people for them to say, thank you. Thank you. You are doing a great job. Keep up the good work, right? Some of you serve in capacities where you never hear that. And it is so good for us to speak those kind of words to each other. So he commends them first, and then he commands them. He doesn't commend them so that they will say, Hey, you're right, Joshua. We are doing a good job, and now we're going to stop. He commends them so that it will push them forward to greater faithfulness. Does that make sense to you? So we don't just encourage people so that they will sit down and say, You're right. I've done a good job. We encourage people so that they will continue to do a good job, right? And maybe even do a better job. Maybe even go further than they have before. And so Joshua commends them, and then he commands them in verse 5. Look what he says. He says, Only be very careful. Very careful to observe the commandment and the law which, the, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And then he continues to develop that thought. He says, you have done well, you have served well, you have fought well, and now you get to go to the land that God has given to you, but don't forget about God. Don't forget to follow Him. Now that the hard work is over, now that the hard work is accomplished, don't forget to serve Him faithfully in the little things, in your daily life. Don't forget to serve Him, honor Him, uh, obey him in all of the little things of your normal life. They've been through a pretty uh, critical period, haven't they? They've been through a major crisis of war and possession of land and all of this stuff. It's been a really big deal. And now life is going to settle down a little bit. And Joshua commands them, don't forget who's brought you here. Don't forget that worship is the priority. And so he encourages them, he commends them, and then he commands them to remain faithful to God. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 continues on. Uh, this part, one commentator said, this is a description of the riches that God has provided for them. And then he said this, not bad for a bunch of nomadic shepherds who didn't have anything, right? Forty years ago, they didn't have anything. They were slaves. They didn't have anything. Now they've got all this stuff and this land. Not bad. God's been pretty faithful to them. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, now to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan, but to the other half... Joshua gave a possession among their brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and he said, Return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with very many clothes. Divided, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead to the land of their possession, which they had possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses. All right, so they've got a lot of stuff. God has given them a lot of stuff in the course of this process. They have a great amount of riches and livestock, and now they're parting ways, and they're going to the land that God has promised to them, that God has given to them as an inheritance. How do you think the emotion of this moment is as these two and a half tribes kind of say goodbye and they go to their land? They're going to go across the river, which is highly significant. Remember when we came across the river the first time? Aaron preached that. That was a big deal. That was a big deal to get across the river that was coming into the promised land. Now these guys are going to separate and go back across the river to the land that God has given them. How do you think the emotions are during this time? I got to think they're high, right? I got to think there's tears. I got to think there's a great deal of pride and a sense of accomplishment. I've got to think this is an emotionally charged moment as the two and a half tribes head back to their land and the ten and a half tribes stay uh, where they are. They have separated. They've been through so much together and now they're going to go their separate ways. And I think we've got to understand the emotion of that moment to understand what happens next, to understand just how big of a deal what happens next is. Look what it says in verse 10. 
verses 1 to 9, we get the commend and command. And in verse 10, we get this offensive altar. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, When they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard about it and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Whoa! Talk about a change of pace, right? Talk about a, a, a huge shift of gears. We've just had this great emotional moment where they've said, way to go, you've been faithful to us. Go back to the land God has given you and enjoy it and dwell there and enjoy the riches. And everything is good, right? Everything is good in verses 1 to 9. It's a happy day for all of them. Everybody's got what they wanted. God has been faithful. And then in verse 10, the Israelites hear what this group has done. This group evidently, and we don't get a lot of details about it in these verses, which is important. We don't get a lot of details about where exactly they built this altar or why they built this altar. It seems strange on all accounts. seems strange that they would build an altar at all. we got to think, don't they know better than this? Don't, don't they know that there's only supposed to be one altar, the altar at the tabernacle, and God told them where to put the tabernacle? Don't they know that, that burnt sacrifices and offerings are only offered there? Well, who do they think they are building this other altar? And the better question is, why do they build it on that side of the Jordan? They don't build it on their side of the Jordan River. They build it on the ten and a half tribes side of the Jordan River. And it's huge, evidently. It's not just some little small pile of rocks. It's a huge pile of rocks. It's a big deal. And what you need to see is it's such a big deal that the rest of the Israelites kind of freak out about it. They've just gone from loving on each other and wishing each other well to they're ready to kill each other. The ten and a half tribes get everybody together at Shiloh and they say, listen, we can't, we can't have this. We've got to go kill all those people. We've got to go make war. Yeah, they're our brothers, but they have crossed the line. What I want you to see is that this altar, <coughs> in, the mind, <coughs> in the mind of the children of Israel, in the mind of the ten and a half tribes, what the two and a half tribes have done is unexcusable, inexcusable. There's absolutely no way this can be okay. There's absolutely no reason why they can get away with this. Does that make sense to you guys? And they are so concerned about the right worship of God, that God not be blasphemed, that God not be um, mocked, that they are ready to kill their brothers. They're ready to kill their brothers whom they love so much because of this offensive altar. And so we see, we see the way the story develops. They hear that an altar has been built and they're ready to go to war. And in verse 13, they do something pretty smart. They send a contingency to talk to the two and a half tribes. They send a group of guys, a group of leaders, to talk to them and, and to figure out what's going on. And they pick the very best guy to lead that group, a guy named Phineas. Look what it says in the text in verse 13. This is the third section. It says, Then the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest. Now, I told you that Phineas is a cool guy. He is a really cool guy. I talked about Phineas with the football team uh, this year at a dinner. Phineas, we get to learn about him in Numbers chapter 25. If you want to turn there and follow along this story, it's fantastic. I will tell it to you, but, but you can read along. Numbers chapter 25, we're introduced to Phineas, uh, son of Eleazar. 
in Numbers chapter 25, we see that God's people who are traveling in the wilderness, this is before Moses has died, this is before Joshua has taken over, certainly before they are entering the promised land, but it's just before all that. Moses is about to die, Joshua is about to take over, and they're about to go into the promised land. And as the children of Israel are wandering in the desert, they, they, the text says that they play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. That's the way it describes it. In other words, they are taking for themselves wives from the daughters of Moab against the direct command of God to them. God had said, no, Israelites, you take Israelites to be your wives. Don't mix with the Moabites. Don't mix with the Canaanites. Uh, because if you do, they'll come in and they'll become like a, like a cancer that grows in you. And they will, they, will, they will steer you away from your God to their gods. And they will pollute the right worship of God. Does that make sense to you? So they weren't supposed to take Moabite wives, but they're doing it. They're doing it. And they are, they are pretty bold about it. They're pretty out in the open about it. In broad daylight, they will take these Moabitess women. So number one, in this story, God's people play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Number two, they begin to join themselves with Baal of Peor. Baal, Baal of Peor. That's going to be important in the text in Joshua. Baal is this well, fertility god of the people of Canaan. And, and not only do God's people in Numbers chapter 25 begin to take the daughters of Moab as their wives, they begin to worship the gods of the Moabites. This is a problem. It's exactly what God said would happen. If you take them as your wives, you're going to start worshiping their gods. And sure enough, in Numbers chapter 25, that's exactly how the story goes. They are taking the daughters of Moab. They join themselves with Baal of Peor. And God gives gets very angry, very angry about this. And he unleashes a plague on the people. People start dying left and right. And what's more, God says to the leaders, he says, get all the leaders together, all of the heads of the tribes, all of the elders of the people, get them together, the ones who are in charge of Israel, get them together and kill them all. In broad daylight, God says, I want you to execute all the leaders. This is a bad thing that's going on here. And God is not going to take it lightly. Not only are Thousands, 24,000 people are going to die by the end of this. But God says, I want you to execute all of the leaders in broad daylight. And so some of the faithful people of Israel, as the story develops, some of the faithful people of Israel come to the tabernacle and get on their faces before God and they weep and they say, oh God, we are, we are sorry. We have joined ourselves with the Moabites. We have joined ourselves with Baal of Peor. We have sinned against you and we are sorry. And they are on their faces and they are weeping and they are asking God to stay his judgment. They're asking God. God to forgive them. And then in the process of this repentance and confession, a guy named Zimri, uh, an Israelite named Zimri, comes along and takes a Moabite woman in broad daylight in front of everybody, makes a big mockery of the whole deal, takes this Moabite woman to his tent to sleep with her. Kind of like a big thumbing the nose at all of what's going on here. And say he says, I don't care. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God does. I'm going to have this Moabite woman because I want this Moabite woman. Well, in the story, Phineas sees all of this happening. He sees some of God's people on their face repentant, confessing, begging for God's forgiveness, begging to him that he would stay his wrath. And he sees Zimri take this woman to his tent. And so Phineas gets up and he follows them into this tent. And he takes his spear, Phineas does, takes his spear, the text says, and spears them both through with one spear. Kills them both. It's a big deal. Phineas freaks out, right? He's on his face crying, sees this happening, says, not on my, not on my watch, Phineas says. Not on my watch is someone going to do something like this. And he chases them into the tent, and he runs them both through with a skewer, and he kills them. And you know what God says? Way to go, Phineas. 
Way to go, Phineas. He honors Phineas. He blesses Phineas. In fact, part of what happens in Numbers chapter 25 is he says, Phineas, your family is going to be a priest forever. Your family is going to be part of the priesthood forever. Way to go. Because Phineas is so zealous for the right worship of God. He says, we can't have this kind of blasphemy. We can't have this kind of problem. We can't, we can't have this kind of open sin. It's got to be stopped. It's got to be checked. And Phineas does something about it. And God says, way to go, Phineas. And the plague is checked. Not all the leaders are killed. The text says 24,000 people, however, die because of the sin of taking the Moabite women and joining themselves with Baal of Peor, 24,000 Israelites die in this process. And you know who stopped it? Phineas stopped it. So if we've got a big spiritual problem, who do you want going out there? Give me Phineas. Put Phineas on that team. He's going to take care of it. He's not going to mess around. He's not going to tiptoe around the problem. He's going to go right after the problem. I want Phineas on the team that goes and talks to, to the two and a half tribes about what's going on here. Okay, so Phineas, he's a cool guy, right? Don't you want to name your son Phineas? (laughs) Phineas is the man. What I want you to see in this text is that Phineas reminds them that what's going on here is a big problem. Look at how it develops. 14 says, And with him ten chiefs, one chief for each of the father's household, from each of the tribes of Israel, and one each... And each one of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. They came to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, by the way, I'll stop there. This is good, right? They don't immediately go to war. They try to talk about it. They're ready to go to war. They're ready to defend God's honor. They're ready to defend the right worship of God. But they talk about it first. That's a good lesson to learn. And they say, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel? See how big of a deal they think it is? An unfaithful act against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord. See, why are you doing this? Two, two and a half tribes, why are you doing this? Why are you rebelling like this? Why are you committing this unfaithful act? Then look what he says. Phineas is the spokesperson here. He says, is not the iniquity of Peor? You remember when I ran those two people through with my spear? Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us? From which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although the plague came upon is, uh, uh, the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. He said, did you not learn anything at Peor? Did you not learn about how the sin of a few can affect the many? Did you not learn about how God is zealous for his worship and he's not going to allow himself to be blasphemed? Did you not learn about how he gets angry even with his own people and punishes them for their sin? Did you not learn anything at Peor? Then he takes it up a notch. He says, look, look at what he says in verse 18, part B. If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. He says, this is not just about you guys. This is about all of us. You're dragging us all into this problem. We're in this together. We're a family. You can't just go your own way and think it won't affect us. And then he begins to develop that thought a little more. He says, if, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord God. Did not Achan, remember that story? One guy. One guy took some stuff he shouldn't have taken, and a bunch of people died because of it. Do you remember that? It was a mess. One guy sinned, took what wasn't his, and the whole group is punished for it. 
Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. You catch what's going on here? Phineas comes and he says, this is a big, big deal. Do you guys not know what's going on here? You can't build an altar like this. You can't do something like this. God is going to get angry with all of us and wipe us all out. What are you doing? You're putting us all at jeopardy. And he gives them a chance. He says, if you've gotten over into that land and they have corrupted you, come back. Come over here with us. We'll give you a part of our land so that you don't have to live over there and, and be perverted by, their, by those people. They say, you can come back here, but don't put us all in jeopardy. And look what happens next. This is gold. This is gold. This is the next part of the story. Verse 21, it says, Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows. He knows. And may Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or if an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us on this day. They say, whoa, 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 Phineas, calm down. Relax a little bit. God, God knows what's going on here, and we want you to know what's going on here. If we've done something wrong, if we have built an unholy altar, then we'll take the punishment. Don't save us if that's the case. But they're going to argue that that's not the case. Look at verse 23. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if to offer a burnt offering or grain offering on it, or if to sacrifice, offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. But truly, we have done this out of concern, for a reason saying, in time, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you, you sons of Reuben and sons of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. So Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh begin to speak to Phineas, and they say, wait a minute, Phineas, we, there's purpose behind this. We, we built this altar out of concern, and here are the two concerns. Number one, that in days to come, the people who live on the west side of the Jordan, the Cisjordanian tribes, the majority of Israel... They think that in years to come, they will begin to look down on the folks that are the Transjordanian tribes, and they will say, you're not really part of us. That this group will look at the two and a half tribes, and they will say, you're not really Israel. If you were really Israel, you would live over here. Does that make sense to you guys? So number one concern is that the Cisjordanian tribes will look at the Transjordanian tribes and say, you're not really Israel. And the second concern is that when that happens, the Transjordanian tribes will say, all right, we, we're not part of Israel, and we won't, won't worship God anymore. We won't serve Yahweh anymore, and that they would begin to stray. So the Transjordanian tribes, tribes begin to speak to them and say, listen, you need to understand what's going on here. We had to make some kind of reminder that we are all in this together. Look what he says in verse 26. It says, therefore, we said, let us build an altar not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. That's huge. We're not going to offer sacrifices here. Rather... It shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we 
that we are to perform the service of the Lord before Him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will not say to our sons in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Therefore, we said, it shall also come about if they say this to us or to our generations in times to come, then we will say, see the copy That word is so important. See the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it is a witness between us and you. In other words, they say, we're not building this altar to make sacrifices on it. We know that there's only one place to make sacrifices, and that's at the tabernacle. But we're building this altar as a copy or a symbol to remind you and to remind us that we are one big family under the Lord. It's to bring us together. It's to serve as a copy. It's really just a monument of reminder. And the book of Joshua is full of monuments of reminders, right? Remember when Achan sinned? Remember when they stoned Achan? They stoned him to death. You remember that part? They left the rocks piled up, do they not? Why? So that they would remember the sin of Achan. This pile of rocks is similar to that pile of rocks, only it's to remind them of their unity in the Lord. It's to remind them that they are all one big family. It's not to be an altar of sacrifice. It's simply to be a reminder. They say this in verse 29, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, or for sacrifice, besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. So the two and a half tribes say, oh, Phineas, you don't understand. You don't understand. If we've done something wrong, kill us. If we've done something wrong, the Lord will require it of us. But we haven't done anything wrong here. We're not offering sacrifices. We're trying to bring this whole thing together. We're trying to stay together for generations to come. And what you see is that the truth prevails. Look what happens in verse 30. So Phineas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation... Even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke. It pleased them. You realize what was about to happen? Civil war. Righteous, zealous civil war was about to break out. And they talked through it. And they came to an agreement. Phineas goes up and he says, you cannot do this. And they say, we're not doing this. And Phineas says, oh. Okay. That's really the way this story develops from here on out. Phineas just kind of says, Oh, if that's the case, we're fine. It says it pleased them. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. He says, It's okay. We're not going to come kill you. We understand. It's good. The truth wins, right? Crisis averted. This is a happy day. This is what needs to happen in the church, is it not? We we get in all kinds of fights and disagreements because we don't know the whole story and we're ready to kill each other. And if we would just talk about it, we'd realize we're on the same page. Or we'd realize it's really not that important. You see, what happened was the tribes that lived on the west side of the Jordan thought this was a huge, blatant, flagrant foul against God. And the tribes on the other side were, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not that big of a deal. It's not that major of an issue. You need to understand it's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. And it's okay. And then the tribes on the west side say, oh, okay, that's okay. We can handle a symbol. We can handle this thing. As long as you're not breaching God's trust, as long as you're not blaspheming his name, as long as you're not corrupting his worship, we can handle that. This is not that big of a deal. 
I'll give you a very practical application of this in a minute. So they say, way to go. Way to go. Look what it says in verse 31 at the end. Today we know that the Lord God is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad, came from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the sons of Israel and brought back word to them. And look at verse 33. The word pleased the sons of Israel. And the sons of Israel blessed God, and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness, for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is a beautiful picture of God's people living together even when they're not together. It's a beautiful picture of misunderstanding, misinformation. It's a beautiful picture of talking things out. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation. It's a beautiful picture of unity in the end. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing, right? And there are all kinds of lessons that we can learn from it. And I'll give you two categories of lessons from this text. Number one is a superficial category of lessons to learn. Superficial lessons to learn from this text. Number one, rumors are nothing but trouble. Rumors are nothing but trouble. The children of Israel that lived on the west side of the Jordan hadn't seen the altar. They didn't know about the altar. They had only heard about the altar, and they totally freaked out over what they had heard. And I want to tell you that a lot of times the stuff you hear is not accurate. A lot of times when you hear stuff around the church, you don't know the whole story. And so don't freak out about it when you first hear about it. You might want to do some investigation. You might want to talk to someone about it so that you get the whole story. Does that make sense? Superficial application number one is rumors are nothing but trouble. Number two, there is pain in misunderstanding. There were some really hurt feelings. At the beginning of this story, brothers were ready to kill brothers over this. They had just had this beautiful moment of, oh, I love you, I love you, thank you for fighting with us. Now go home and enjoy yourself to let's get together and kill them. There can be some huge pain and misunderstanding, can't there? Have any of you ever been involved in something like that? We're, we're over some minor misunderstanding. There is hurt feelings and broken relationships and pain and trouble. Have you been a part of that? It's not good, right? It's not good, and we see it all over this text. Number three, superficial lesson we learn is the importance of talking problems out. It's good that Phineas goes and talks to them. It's good that Phineas doesn't take his spear first, right? He would have. He was ready for that. But he went and talked to them first, and it's important that we talk things out. We are quick to take action sometimes and slow to have discussions. We should be quick in the church to have discussions and slow to take action. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt and we just leave without ever addressing what's going on. It is better that we talk it through. And I think you'll find, like in this story, once you talk it through, it's no big deal. You see, what the tribes that lived on the west side of the Jordan, what they thought was that some major breach had happened. Some major issue of truth had been forsaken and broken. That something major had gone wrong. They didn't go, the, the, I've been saying ten and a half, it's really nine and a half tribes, right? Nine and a half plus two and a half equals twelve. Sorry. The nine and a half tribes go, not because they say, we don't think you should build an altar here, or we don't like the kind of altar you're, you built, or we don't prefer it done this way. That's not why the nine and a half tribes went ready to go to war. They went ready to go to war because the truth was at stake. 
They were ready to fight and die over the truth. Not over preference, not over style, not over some kind of feeling or emotion. They were ready to fight and die for the truth. And we need to be ready to fight and die for the truth, right? But too many of us are ready to fight and die over preference and emotion and uh, style. Some little thing that really doesn't matter a whole lot, like the temperature in the room or the kind of lights or the kind of drums or whatever. We're ready to fight and die over that kind of stuff. Shame on us. Shame on us when we're ready to fight and die over that. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is the truth. If someone is strayed from the truth, we fight over that. And we separate over that. But this other stuff we need to relax a little bit about. And you see this beautiful picture of it, right? They thought, the nine and a half tribes thought it was an issue of truth. And when they went to confront the issue of truth and realized it wasn't an issue of truth, they said, hey, no problem. No problem. No problem. You want to have a symbol there? That's fine. Have that symbol there. It'll be a good reminder for us. It'll be a good reminder for you. We're not going to fight over something like this. All the lessons we can learn from this text superficially about the trouble with rumors, the pain of misunderstanding, the importance of talking problems out. And the last one is that reconciliation is possible. Reconciliation is possible. When we get into these disagreements, when we have these misunderstandings, we can come together and it can be okay. How many of you can testify to that in your life? That you had a problem and it worked out and now it's okay. How many of you are married? You've got, you got to live there, right? That's what married life is about. It's daily reconciliation. We don't get along. Am I the only one? We don't get along all the time. We fight. But the beauty of it is we come back together. Why? Because we're committed to each other. And we're not going to let something small break us apart. We're going to figure it out. We're going to fix it. Reconciliation is possible in the church, but it doesn't happen passively. Reconciliation doesn't just come out of the sky. It takes action. It takes discussion. It takes work. It takes tears. It takes apologies. It's hard, but it's possible. Those are the superficial lessons. The, the tiny little lessons. Those are good, right? I love this. Here are the essential lessons. The major lessons you learn from this text. Number one, all of it, all of it has to do with the importance of passion for faithfulness to God. Let me explain it this way. Verse, chapters 1 to 22 of Joshua are all proof that God has been faithful to them. Chapters 1 to 22 are all proof, 1 to 21 are all demonstration, testimony, that God has been faithful to his people. The question that looms over chapters 22 to 24 is, will God's people be faithful to him? Does that make sense to you? And I think that's the question that we've got to wrestle with all the time. Is that I think our lives are testimony and proof that God has been faithful to us. I think when, when I look at my life, and, and I, I don't have a long one, I, I, I agree with you on that. I'm 31 years older, there's not a lot behind me. There's probably more ahead of me than there is behind me. But when I look back over 31 years, I see over and over and over again testimony of God's faithfulness. Testimony of how he loves me and cares for me and provides for me and takes care of me. Over and over, it is undisputed that God is faithful, right? The question that I've got to deal with every day is what will I do with that? Do I care anything about that? The question I've got to deal with every day is, am I going to be faithful to him? He has been faithful to me. The question is, will I be faithful to him? And that's what you see in this text. It's a, it's a bold example of it. Phineas was ready to be faithful to God. And the two and a half tribes are ready to be faithful to God. 
They just didn't see eye to eye on how that happened until they talked it out. So all of this, the essential lesson that we learned, is the importance of passion for faithfulness to God. God has been faithful to them. Will they be faithful to God? And here's the direct application for you. We need more guys like Phineas. I need a lot of Phineases in this church. I need to be Phineas in this church. Not zealous for my preference. Not zealous for my feelings. But zealous for the truth. And ready to fight and die if need be for the truth. And ready to take care of all the rest of the problems with discussion. Right? I need to be Phineas. And you need to be Phineas. Once the truth is clear... Once the truth is made clear that this is not an altar of sacrifice, that this is not blasphemy before God, that this is not a perversion of the worship of God, once the truth is clear, Phineas says, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all in. I love it, in fact. It pleases him, it says. It pleases the people who are with him. And then when they go report it back to the rest of Israel, it pleases them, too. Once the truth is made clear, God's people will come alongside the truth, and they will worship together in the truth. The truth prevails every time, and so we must be people who seek the truth. We need more guys like Phineas, passionate for the truth, ready to work problems out, ready to fight and die when necessary, and wise to know the difference. Right? So what are some of the truths that we should fight and die over? The gospel. (laughs) Yeah, there's about one of them. One, one truth that we fight and die over, and it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? If someone stands up and says, oh, there are lots of ways to get saved. Oh, there are lots of ways to be forgiven. Oh, if you're just sincere, if you're just, if you're just wholehearted with it, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, you'll go to heaven. And we fight and die over that, right? And we celebrate and we rally around that central truth. That's what brings us together. They rally around, Joshua and his friends rally around the tabernacle. And the sacrifices that are offered at the tabernacle. And they don't want another sacrifice to be offered. It only happens at the tabernacle. And they rally around that tabernacle and they say, this is what brings us together. And what brings us together as the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's what brings us together. It's what binds us together. That Christ came to die for sinners. And that there is salvation available only through Him. That we are saved by grace through faith in Him as a gift. It's not something we earn. That we repent and believe that's the right response to the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And we rally around that. And the rest of this stuff needs to kind of fall off the table a little bit. Trouble is, we let the rest of that stuff dominate our thoughts. We let the rest of that stuff dominate our lives. And the gospel falls off the table. It happens in churches every day. Nobody nobody talks about the gospel because they talk about music. Nobody talks about the gospel because they talk about the temperature. Nobody talks about the gospel because they talk about property and money. Shame on us if we ever get there. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's rally around the gospel. You get it? Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for good news that a sinner like me, who deserves only wrath and anger from you for all of eternity can find hope, forgiveness, and life because of Jesus Christ who died in my place, took my sin, suffered my wrath, died my death, 
and rose. Gives me life, righteousness, forgiveness, and reconciliation to you. God, thank you for the gospel. And I pray that we will learn to be zealous for the gospel. That we will contend for the gospel. That we will emphasize the gospel. God, I pray that you raise up in this church men and women like Phineas who are zealous for the truth, love the truth, and will fight for the truth and will not be distracted by minor things. God, help us. Help us to observe your faithfulness and help us to respond in faithfulness to you. Be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.